Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go back to um, Hebrews chapter 11. And if you are using one of the Bibles provided for you, it's page 1008. Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Let me ask this question before we get started. What do you want to be known for? If you could write out in a sentence or in a couple words or whatever, what do you want to be known for? You ever thought about that? Another way to ask the question is, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? That would be another way to ask the same question. Um, you know, sometimes what we, we would like to be known for and what we are known for are two different things. Um, but sometimes what we want to be known for and what we then are known for, they do match up. And I was starting to think of some, some illustrations of how people, when we think of one thing about them, we, we miss other things about them. And so I, I thought of um, Colonel Sanders. <laughs> what do you think of when you think of Colonel Sanders? Chicken. Was the guy even in the military? I mean, you know, he's Colonel Sanders. Uh, you know, Kentucky just gives these colonel uh, uh, titles out, apparently. But uh, so there's that. So I thought of him. Uh, Bill Gates. What do you think of Bill Gates? Computers, Windows. But, you know, he probably has made more of an impact with his uh, philanthropic activity. He's very, very generous in that. Um, Michael Jordan. What do you think of Michael Jordan? Basketball, the Bulls, things like that. I didn't hear anyone say baseball, <laughs> even though I did play baseball, kind of-ish, uh, a little bit there. Um, Steve Martin, what do you think of Steve Martin? Comedian, actor, I'm surprised Rob didn't say it. He's an accomplished banjo player. Yeah, I mean, he, he's like won awards and stuff. Um, uh, one more, uh, Pierce Brosnan. What do you think of Pierce Brosnan? James Bond, I heard it. Maybe some of you would, would say Remington Steele, okay? All right, some of you remember that, okay? Um, all right, but did you know that he worked in the circus as a fire eater? Did you know that? True story. Yeah. Um, so there's people have these hidden talents, or people have things that other people, like a small part of the population, would know about them, uh, but that's not what they're known for. And so sometimes we can't always determine exactly how people are going to remember us. In fact, you know, there are some people that they don't want to be remembered for what they're remembered for. Like, what was the guy's name? Bill Buckner, was was that his name? Yeah, 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 baseball, yeah, that that wasn't a good thing. Um, So sometimes that happens. You know, when I, I was reading through Hebrews chapter 11, and, I mean, there's all sorts of these things that we were talking about here, like, Abraham, verse 17, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And uh, he who received the promises in the act of offering. I mean, it was this tremendous uh, test of faith there uh, for that. And then later on, it talks about people crossing the Red Sea. And, and then at verse 32, look at Hebrews eleven thirty-two. 32. He says, what more shall I say? For time of family, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And he talks about all these things. And then verse 33, who through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, 
quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. I mean, these are some pretty significant activities here. But then as we read earlier in verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and of of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's what the, the writer of Hebrews wants to remember Joseph by. Now, why is that? Of all the things that he could have written about Joseph, and, and we know that there's a lot of things that he could have written about Joseph, of all the things, he chose this. So obviously, it wasn't like the, the writer of Hebrews got a case of writer's block in this time. No, there was a significant point that he was trying to make as he was writing this. And so what is that? Well, in order to understand that significance, I think we need to, to, to review a couple things. I think we need to go back, and I think we need to do really understand two things. One, we got to be reminded of and understand about the life of Joseph, and then we need to understand the Exodus, okay? And if we get those two things down, then we're going to understand what he was trying, the author of Hebrews was trying to accomplish. So go back all the way to the beginning in your Bibles. And go back to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. First book of the Bible, Genesis 37. We're going to be right at the end of, uh, uh, right in the beginning of that. Uh, so this is page 31 if you're using one of the, the Bibles provided for you. The, you could, so if we're going to understand Joseph's life, we could break Joseph's life up into several different categories. And, and different people do it in different ways. Some people do it as little as three times, like 0 to 17, 17 to 30, and 30 to 120 years old. That's a typical way to divide up the life of Joseph because those markers are given in the text in Genesis. Um, for our purpose today, I'm actually going to you know, break it down a little bit more and have five different distinctions of the life of Joseph here. And the first one is that he is a patriarchal ancestor, okay? And we actually get that in chapter 35, uh, at the end of 35, when he says, Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. This is verse 22. Verse 23 of 35 of Genesis says, The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Okay, so we here, we're introduced here at the end of chapter 35 that Joseph is being born to Jacob. Now, I said he's a patriarchal ancestor. What do I mean by that? We got to go back even further. We're not going to take time to turn to the text. We got to go back further and say this starts with Abraham. Now, if you know anything about your biblical history, you'll understand that the people of God started with Abraham. And when God went to Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And this is known as the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. So God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And I, your, 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 uh, your generations are going to be more than the sand, the grains of sand in the earth and the stars in the sky. And I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you this, this entire land for you to dwell in. But what I want you to do right now, Abraham, you just need to get up and you need to start moving. I'm not telling you where to go, the end destination. You just need to start following my direction. And so Abraham does this. Now, at this time, 
when Abraham received this promise in this Abrahamic covenant of having been the father of many nations, what was highly unusual about Abraham and his wife at this time? He didn't have what? They didn't have any kids yet. You're right. Okay, so this is a a very interesting promise that's given to him. So later on, as years go by and years go by, they're not having children. They're not having children. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they're expecting God to fulfill his promise, and yet there, is no, there are no children coming. So Abraham decides to kind of shortcut the route, and, and, and then has a, uh, Abraham and Sarah decide this. And so Abraham then goes into one of the servants of, of, uh, of Sarah, and so they have a sexual relationship, and then the, the product of that is Ishmael. And so then Abraham's like, okay, great. Here's the beginning of this. God says, no, this is not what it is. It was supposed to be you and Sarah. So then finally, in their old age, who is born? Who's born? Isaac is born. Very good. So Isaac is born. So now we have Isaac. This is that text that I was reading about earlier when by faith he offered up Isaac because then remember God was testing Abraham's faith and saying, hey, go offer your son as a sacrifice. Of course, he stops that because he wasn't going to have him do that. But it was, it was, was he going to believe? And then the writer of Hebrews talks about how that Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead if the, he was going to go through with this. So it's a tremendous uh, a test of, of faith in God being able to fulfill his promise no matter what the circumstances of this world brought. So we have Abraham, we have Isaac now being born, okay? Now Isaac has twins born to him. What were their names? Jacob and Esau, very good. Okay, so Jacob and Esau are born, and then now, and there's a lot of tension between those two brothers, and and we're not going to get into all that. So Jacob then has how many sons? How many sons does he have? He has 12, okay? Jacob has 12 sons, and Joseph is one of those sons. And so if you ever heard of like the 12 tribes of Israel, this is where it comes from. It comes from Jacob's 12 uh, children, Joseph being one of those. So now this is the patriarchal ancestor. So, so the reason why I'm trying to bring this and took just a couple minutes this morning to remind us of this is that Joseph comes from pedigree. Joseph comes from a line of a family that was said, I am going to fulfill a promise with Abraham. And Joseph was part of that. Joseph was a direct part of that, a direct line from Abraham. In, verse, in chapter 37, though, where I ask you to turn in Genesis, we find this in verse 1. Jacob, Joseph's father, lived in the land of his father's sojournings, now in the land of Canaan. Now that's talking about Abraham when God says, just go, and I'm going to lead you, but I'm not going to tell you exactly where we're going, but it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be a perfect land for you to have your people in, but you need to go. So that's when it says these sojournings, this is what's happening here. They're not at their destination yet. So Jacob's living in this land. These are the generations of Jacob. And then it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. It seems, though, if that there was definitely some tension between Joseph and his brothers. Uh, because he here, so I told you the first part of that I wanted you to understand is that he was a patriarchal ancestor. 
But what I want you to understand here in the second part of his life is that Joseph was the favored dreamer, okay? He was the favored dreamer. We know that in verse 3, it says, now Israel, now that's J- Jacob, okay, because God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and so he's referring to Jacob there. Now Jacob, or Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was a son of his old age. So he's a favored kid, okay? Now, many of us who have siblings have always you know, suspected that our parents had favorites. And we never suspected that we were the favorite one. Have you ever noticed that? Um, it's always the other person that is the suspected favorite one. Whether that's true or not in your family, I have no, uh, no, no idea about. But what I do know is that in Jacob's case, in Joseph's case, it was true. And parenthetically, as a side note, if you were looking for reasons... Not to believe in polygamy, this would be one, okay? All right? It, it caused tremendous jealousy amongst the families here, okay? So here we have Joseph being the favored. Now, I said he's a favored dreamer. Now, why did I say he was dreamer? Well, because first of all, as I told you, he brought this bad report to them. There was some tension between Joseph. Jacob gives him a coat of many colors, showing his tremendous love for him. And I want you to notice verse 4. At the end of it, it talks about the brothers. It says they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. You know, another way you could read that is that Thanksgiving dinners were tense, okay? That'd be another way to read that. Now, Joseph had a dream, verse 5. He had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And, he, and I'm not going to go read all the different you know, details of these dreams, but he has two of them, and one of them, basically, excuse me, in both of them, people are bowing down to him. Okay, he's interpreting it as the brothers are going to serve him. The brothers are going to bow before him. And then even in the second one, he includes his father in this. That the father would bow before him. And so first of all, this brought the hatred of the brothers even more. But then it also brought the rebuke of the father. Jacob says he rebukes him. Now the text is clear that he kept these things and he, and he remembered these things. It was like he was pondering them. But in the moment, he rebuked Joseph for this. And so we have this favored dreamer here. He was someone who was getting dreams from God that he was saying was, was pro, uh, prophetic of what would happen in the future. Now, we have the benefit of knowing the full story already and knowing that this prophecy does come true. But at the time, Joseph didn't have this. Joseph's brothers didn't have this. Jacob didn't have that full knowledge of it. So what happens here? There's tremendous tension here. And so he, he, he begins this under, this is the first part of God starting to work with Joseph through dreams. And so, because of the rejection, because of the hatred, it says they hated him even more. Many of you know the story at the end of chapter 37, in the middle to the end, Joseph then is sold into slavery. Jacob tells Joseph, go and, and see how your brothers are doing. Go check in on them. They're out there tending sheep and tending flocks and things like this. And so he says they're in uh, a faraway city. And so he goes there. They're not there. Someone catches Joseph. He, literally, I love the text. It says wandering in the fields. He's just like, I don't know where to go. 
And so this person says, the stranger, unnamed person, says, who are you looking for? Joseph tells him. He says, ah, they've moved on. So Joseph, instead of just going home and saying, yeah, yeah, I couldn't find him, he says, okay, I'll go on even further. And so he goes even further, and he meets up with his brothers. And the Bible says, and the text here says, if you want to read through it later on, it says, well, they saw him coming. They're like, ah, here comes the dreamer. And they couldn't stand this kid. They couldn't stand him. 17-year-old, just annoying to them, kid. And so they come up with an idea, first of all, to kill him, but secondly, then through another brother's intervention, to sell him into slavery. And so at 17 years old, Joseph sold into slavery. And this begins a, a new chapter in his life. And we, we read about that at the end of chapter 37. Chapter 38 of Genesis, we don't read anything about. There's a, 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 a story about Judah and Tamar, Judah being one of his brothers. Uh, then it picks up in chapter 39 again. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, been, had brought him excuse me, had bought him from the Ishmaelites whom had brought him down there. And so the people that the Joseph's brothers sold him to then sold him over to uh, the people in Pharaoh's army, Potiphar's army, the captain of the guard. And he was in the house of the Egyptian master, it says in verse 2 of chapter 39. And so this begins the third section of Joseph's life, and he becomes an accused servant. He's a servant in Pharaoh's house. I say that he was accused because over time, uh, the Bible is very clear in verse 6 that Joseph was good-looking, and the master's wife, Potiphar's wife, wanted to have a sexual relationship with Joseph. And in the scripture is very clear here that this was not just a one-time offer. This was a day after day temptation for Joseph. Joseph was serving his 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 master in the house, and he had uh, been given great responsibility. And and Potiphar's wife keeps coming to him. No, come. She's literally throwing herself at Joseph, and he says no. No. And at one point, after many days, I don't know how long it was, but it says day after day, at one point, she physically grabs him and says, we are doing this tonight. And Joseph says, no. And he pulls away from her. The, 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 the clutch was so tight that, she, that as he was pulling away, the coat comes off of him. And he runs out of the house and says, I cannot do this. Well, she feels scorned. And she says, if I can't have him, no one can have him. And she lets out a scream and she says, this servant has tried to rape me. Well, Potiphar hears of this and then throws him in prison. So now he's an accused servant. He, had, he was serving, he was doing his job, but yet he gets falsely accused. Now, the highlight of chapter 39, though, is not, in, in my estimation, is not that story, not that part of the story. 
there are four times that the author in chapter 39 says a certain phrase. In verse 2, he says, the Lord was with Joseph. In chapter uh, verse 3, the master saw that the Lord was with him. In verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And then in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And so that to me is the key in understanding this whole story of Joseph is that God in his mercy and God in his grace had said, I am going to be with this person. I am going to be with him. And it was obvious to everyone around him that what he was doing was successful, not because of Joseph's talents and abilities, but because God had said, I am going to be with you. And my presence will be here. And so we have the accused servant here that was able to say no because and it was that awareness of the presence of God that I believe gave him the ability to say no. I believe that's the point of the story of of being put in there. It said that this was the manifestation of God being with him that Joseph was able to say no to this tremendous temptation. And the reason why I know that it was, it was because of God's enablement is because in verse 9, when Joseph is talking to Potiphar's wife, and he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It was the presence of God in his life that ruled his decision making. It was understanding that God was with him and that was using him and was was motivating him that said, no, I cannot sin against God in this way. And even though the circumstances were terrible, Joseph, the presence of God overshadowed that. Can you imagine being Joseph thinking, I can't catch a break here. I get a dream from God, and so I share it with my brothers, and they hate me for it. And then they sell me. And then not only do I not get out of that first imprisonment, but then I'm sold again to the Egyptian army, and now I'm serving. And so I'm doing the best I can. I'm working so hard, and things are happening. I feel God's presence. We're having great communion, great fellowship. And then this, this, this temptation, this terrible, intense temptation comes to him. And he says, no. I mean, at that point, when he's running away, do you think for a minute that, that, that Joseph really didn't have any desire there? He had the desire, I guarantee it. But he said no. And so he's running away from there. So I've said no. And then he gets accused of doing what he refused to do. That's me, Joseph, here. I can't catch a break. He's an accused servant, but... The key to understanding the story of Joseph is this chapter here, and that the Lord was with him. So he goes from being the accused servant to the fourth part of his life, and that he's an imprisoned interpreter. This is at the end of chapter 39, and then all the way through chapter 41, the first part of chapter 41. He's in prison. We don't know exactly how long he was in prison, because chapter 40, verse 1 says, sometime after this. So after Joseph is in prison, after being falsely accused, after his reputation has been marred, he's been accused of doing something that he refused to do, but yet he still gets the punishment for it. So sometime after this, he's in prison, and two people from Pharaoh's uh, household, are they displease Pharaoh, and so they're thrown in prison with Joseph. Joseph, being such a good model uh, prisoner, is actually put in charge over these people. It's a cupbearer and a baker. 
And over some time after being in there, we read in chapter 40 that the cupbearer and the baker had dreams. And they didn't know what they meant. And so Joseph then says, tell me the dream and I will uh, tell you the interpretation. He says, do not the interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. That's verse 8 of chapter 40. And so they tell them the dreams. I won't go into all the details of them. But the gist of it is, is that one of them, it's good news and the other one is bad news. The one for the cupbearer, that meant that in a short amount of time, he was going to be restored. Pharaoh was going to lift him up and restore him to his place. Everything was going to be great. But for the baker, Pharaoh was going to lift him up again. But that was meant he was going to lift him up by his neck and hang him. And so... Bad news for the baker. Good news for cupbearer. Bear. Bad news for the baker. And so, but notice this in verse uh, uh, fourteen of chapter forty. He says, "Only remember me." This is Joseph after he tells them the interpretations. He says, "Please remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to the Pharaoh." He's talk, talking to the cupbearer. He says, "Tell me, and please remember me, and 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 and." Mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen from the land of the Hebrews. We're going to come back to that because that's another key verse in understanding Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. So here's Joseph. He's interpreting as he's imprisoned these dreams, and he asks to be remembered. But if things can't get any worse... Look at verse 23 of chapter 40. Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This guy can't get a break. I mean, it is just, I mean, he's doing good thing after good thing. He's working hard. He's trying to obey God. The presence of God is with him. But yet, he's stuck in prison, and people are forgetting him. An imprisoned interpreter. Well, how long? Does this go on? Well, chapter 41, verse 2 says, after two whole years. He was forgotten by the cupbearer for two years. It wasn't like he, he got to the, the Pharaoh's household and said, oh man, I forgot to do this, and it was a week later. No, two years go by. Pharaoh dreamt, had a dream, and he couldn't figure out what it meant. And then it was after this, two years, the chief cupbearer in verse 9 of chapter 41 says, I remember my offenses today. Well, a lot of good that's doing Joseph. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. He and I, each having a dream of his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving the interpretations to each man according to his dream. And then so Pharaoh calls Joseph. He's an imprisoned person, but he's interpreting. Now, I want to point out as as he's interpreting this, look how quick Joseph is to give God credit. In verse 16 of chapter 41, he says, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one God has revealed. And so in verse 28, as I told to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh. Um, so we see over and over again Joseph saying, it is God. Now, how would he understand that? Why did he knew that? Because he understood the presence of God going back a couple chapters earlier. That God was with him. Even when life was awful, God was with him. When everyone else was forgetting him, when he felt intensely alone, 
When people forgot him, God was with him. And Joseph knew that. So, he, we move to the final stage of his life. He's the respected ruler. After he gives the interpretation to Pharaoh, which means that there's going to be seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine, and that they needed to prepare for that. Pharaoh says, you be in charge of that. Makes him second in command, puts him in the highest. I mean, he had fame, he had wealth, he had recognition, he had reputation back. Everything that he lost was regained in a snap of the fingers by Pharaoh when Joseph gave him the interpretation. So Joseph then, for the next 80 years, because we see in verse 46 of chapter 41, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, remember, see who was paying attention. How old was Joseph when he got sold by his brothers? 17. At 30, he's being promoted. Let's see who's good at math. How many years is that? 13 years, okay? So this is a long journey for Joseph. 13 years of being forgotten, of having his reputation taken away, of feeling alone, but understanding the presence of God. And he was, uh, he was able to serve God and stay true to God and give credit to God, not because of what man was doing for him or to him for 13 years, because they weren't doing anything for him. It was the presence of God that kept him going for 13 years. And so at 30, Joseph is promoted. And then we know at the end, in chapter 50 of Genesis, that Joseph dies at 110 years old. And so, again, if you're good at math, that means 80 years Joseph ruled as a respected ruler. Many of you know the story. I'll summarize it very quickly here. During the time of famine, Joseph's brothers come to him. They don't recognize him. There's some back and forth, and Joseph is doing some testing and things like that to see if they've learned some lessons. Long story short, he reveals himself to his brothers, and they, he says, I'm Joseph. This was about nine years into the, after his promotion. Joseph is 39 years at this point, 39 years old at this point. And so at 17 years old, he last saw his brothers. At 39, he sees them again. So he hasn't seen his brothers for 22 years. And he's remembered for 22 years what they did to him. And the story of Joseph is not that he gets back at them. You know the story well, most of you, that he forgives his brothers. How can he do that? I think it goes back to the presence of God. He understood that God was there even though he didn't feel it, even though it wasn't necessarily always obvious to him. He believed that God was there. And you know, there are times where we do not feel God's presence. There are times when we, we feel like we are forgotten. And there are times where that season seems long. But it's in those moments that we don't go to our feelings. We go to the nature of God. I know. I experience it. I experience it. And in some ways, I'm experiencing it right now. I'm in the season of life where I just feel that God isn't close. If I can be transparent. But my friends, I don't preach to you my feelings. 
I preached to you what God's word says. And God's word says he is near. And he is close. And I don't know how long these seasons last, and some of you are walking through a long season of uncertainty right now. And I don't know how long that's going to last. I don't know if it's going to be a a month. I don't know if it's going to be 13 years like Joseph. But God is near. And when you understand that, when you understand the reality of that, even if you don't feel it in the moment, it produces a faith that says, I can wait, and I can forgive, and I can be patient. This is what I think what Joseph understood. The key to Joseph's life is understanding the presence of God. This is why he was able to say no to Potiphar's wife. This is why when he had the chance to recapture his reputation for himself and say, look, yes, I can tell you what the dream says. I can do this and then you'll restore me. No, he says, God will do this for you. I will give all the glory to God. And whatever happens, if I stay in prison, I stay in prison. But if I'm promoted, I'm promoted. And God, in his wisdom, said, I'm going to promote you. But it was God who did that. It wasn't Joseph. God. And so for 80 years, Joseph is this respected leader in Egypt. And fast forward to go over to chapter 50, Jacob, the father, dies. And so the brothers, I mean, you can just see the, the contrast of faith in Joseph and lack of faith in the brothers in some ways, because the brothers kind of get together and they kind of get this huddle. I just imagine this. It's like, you know, they call a family meeting, but don't invite Joseph because they need to talk about Joseph, you know? And so they're like, you know, all right, okay, man, dad's dead now. You know, he, Joseph loved dad. And so he was holding out on getting back at us until dad died. So what are we going to do about this? And so like, let's go to Joseph and let's apologize again. All right. We, we, I mean, he's an Egyptian ruler here. Okay. So it's like he could do whatever he wants. He could just say, hey, we're in prison or hey, well, our heads are coming off. And so we're just going to go and say, hey, I, you know, dad's dead now. And so you're probably being patient. And you know, uh, what does Joseph say? He says, don't fear. Versus, this is verse 19 of chapter 50. He says, don't fear. For am I in the place of God? I don't know about you, but I would be tempted to get back at my brothers. I have two brothers. I know, okay? I know my brother, my older brother, and I don't know if he's going to watch this or not, so, you know, hey, it's true. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. He would instigate things as I was a kid and get me in trouble all the time. And I remember one time, I remember we were a little bit older, and my brother did something wrong. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but if you see me afterwards, I'll tell you, okay? All right? So he did something wrong. And my brother never got in trouble because he was always a good kid. And for me, I was always the stupid kid and, and did things bad and, 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 and did things and got in trouble. And so I remember, that. I, I remember this feeling like it was yesterday. I remember my brother looking at me and going, hey, I'm sorry. And I went, nah. I'm going to tell mom. Now, I'm ashamed to admit I was probably like 14, okay? I'm still telling on my brother. But what motivated that was I said, he's finally going to get it. And I'm going to make sure he does. You can imagine my disappointment when my mom didn't punish him, all right? I share that with you to share that I know in the heart of man the desire for revenge. But what does Joseph say? Am I God? 
where did this come from? I mean, most rulers have a God complex. But he says, I'm not God. It was the presence of God. God was with him. He understood God. He says, am I the place that God asked for you? You meant this evil against me. But God meant it for good, verse 20. To bring by the many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this has Christological implications because Judah was one of Joseph's brothers. If Judah would have died in the famine, which would have happened if Joseph hadn't interceded for his family, who comes from the line of Judah? Jesus. Christological implications here. He says, God meant it for evil. I mean, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He says, to bring about the many will be kept alive as they are today. There's salvific implications in that of people having salvation even because of God working his plan out. He says, don't fear. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. Don't worry about this. He's a respected ruler. Now, I told you there's two things we need to understand. If we're going to understand Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, we've got to understand his life. I've taken time to walk us through that. Very quickly, there's a second thing that we need to understand, and this will take a a significantly shorter amount of time. We need to understand the the, the significance of the exodus. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, 22, it says, By faith, Joseph did two things. He made mention of the exodus, and he gave direction concerning his bones. So both are important. So what about this exodus here? Well, again, that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. It goes back to this covenant where God set up with Abraham and said, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you blessing. I'm going to give you, uh, make you a nation that's going to be great. And it's going to be, I'm just going to make a name, a, a people for myself out of you. And so they're on this journey and they're so journeying around and they're, they're looking for God to fulfill that promise to Abraham. Now, where's the exodus play into that? Well, along the way, the people of Israel get imprisoned. Up until this point, they still don't have the land that God has promised them. In fact, we see that um, there is a a, a promise, a specific promise of land given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 8. I won't go there and read these texts, but, but he says, you've got land coming. And then to Isaac... His son, he says, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, he says, you've got land coming. And then in Jacob, he says, uh, uh, Jacob's, uh, 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 Isaac's son Jacob, in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 12, God says to Jacob, to Israel, he says, you've got land coming. And so Joseph, being the son of Jacob, understands this promise that there's land coming, but yet it's not here yet. I mean, and this is going on. This is a long time. This is years. And then, in Exodus chapter 1, after Joseph dies, in verse 8 of Exodus 1, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And they changed. And the people of Israel, the descendants of Joseph, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of Abraham, they become slaves in Egypt. And they're that way for years. Now, you got to understand how long this is. I told you, about It was 80 years that Joseph was a ruler. And so from the time of Joseph's death until the birth of Moses. And Moses is going to be the one that God uses for the exodus, bringing them out of captivity and into the land of promise. And Moses doesn't fully get there, but he brings them to the brink. From the time of Joseph's death to the birth of Moses, there are 279 years. 
That's the reason why there was a king over Egypt that did not know Joseph. A lot of years went by. And from the time of the death of Joseph until when Moses brings them to the edge of the promised land, is 359 years. That's a long time. Now, we need to understand that timeline in order to understand the significance of the legacy of Joseph. And this is where we bring it back full circle. In Hebrews 11, it says that he made mention of the Exodus. Why is that significant? It's because he believed God's promises even though he didn't always fully see the effects of them. He believed that God would do what he said he would do, even if it wasn't something that he would physically, himself, and personally see. In fact, for 300 and almost 60 years, he, his bones would be rotting in a coffin until the people got their land. But Joseph, he says, What does he say back in chapter 50? He says, I, in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land into the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He says, God will do this. As sure as I'm standing here, I believe that this will happen. And so the legacy of Joseph, when he says he made mention of the Exodus in chapter 11, what the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews wants to understand is this man passionately believed in the promises of God. He would not be shaken from that. And no matter how he felt in the moment, no matter with the circumstances that were surrounding him, he knew that because God said it, it would happen. He made mention of the Exodus. He says, it's going to happen. So that's part of the significance. That's part of the legacy. And he says, God gave direction. He gave direction concerning his bones. He says, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Now let's think about that for a second. He's an Egyptian ruler for 80 years. Do you think he had fame? Because he literally single-handedly saved the nation from famine. He had fame. In fact, I didn't take time to read it, but when Pharaoh was promoting him, he says, everyone's going to bow down to you. He says, when people come, they see you right, they're going to bow the knee to you. And so that was in the DNA of the country that he was going to be respected and he was going to be remembered. And so this coffin, it says that they put him in a coffin, they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. This was probably not just a pine box that they put him in. I mean, he was a respected ruler. In fact, there is archaeological evidence that they may have found the tomb of Joseph, uh, which I can point you into that if you're interested in looking at that. But the point is that there would be a monument to him. There would have been people understanding who he was and what he had accomplished. 
He would have had the reputation that he lost. He would have had the fame. He would have had the wealth even in his death. They would have made a monument to him. But he says, he says, you carry my bones from here. He was saying the reason why it's so significant in Hebrews when he says, by faith he did this. By faith he says, I'm going to give you direction about my bones. I don't want to be in the Egyptian tomb. I don't want to have the fame. I don't want to have the, the notoriety of Egypt. I want to be known as one of God's people. That's what was so powerful about Joseph's statement of faith there. He says, I want to be known as one of God's people. I want to go with you to that land that he has promised. I don't care about this world. I don't care about the riches of this world. I don't care about the fame. I don't care about the notoriety. I want to be known as God's people. The fame and the fortunes were not going to be his legacy. But I think it's important to understand that his coffin became a constant reminder to the people following after him that God would fulfill his promise. Because everyone knew his bones weren't going to stay there. He made him promise. He says, you promise me that my bones won't stay here. Because he had a belief that God would fulfill his promise. So his life was all about being a legacy to God. And he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be satisfied with this world. Now, as you can tell, I get emotional about this because I get so distracted if I can be transparent, I, I, think, I think all of us, we, we get so distracted with this world. And it's not enough. You know what's enough? is being known as God's people. And having faith to believe that God will keep his promises, even if we don't feel it in the moment. And so when Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that it was by faith he did these two things. It was the most significant thing that they could write about Joseph, not about being a dream interpreter, not about saying no to temptation, not about all these other things because that was rooted in his understanding that I am one of God's. And it was the presence of God. You see, he was a citizen of a different country. And we won't take time because of our time here together. But that was kind of the whole point in that section in Hebrews is that Moses wanted to be known as a citizen of another country. And experiencing God's presence makes enduring faith possible. So if you're here today and you don't know if your faith can endure, I get that feeling. But that's when we go back to God and what we know of him. And more so, we have an advantage over Joseph in that if you're a believer in Christ, you have the indwelling work of the Spirit with you that will pray on your behalf, that will utter groanings on your behalf. When you don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for us, we're told in the Scriptures. And so if you're a child of God, then you have the presence of God more so than even what Joseph experienced. May that propel your faith. I get that the promises of God seem distant and unattainable at times. But know that even if you don't feel that, it's not your feeling that will carry you. It's the nature of God.
So if your faith is weak, just cry out to God and ask him to strengthen it. But ask him to pray in your behalf. More often than not, God takes longer than what we budget to fulfill his promises. I told you there was a long time, all those years. There was 286 years from Abraham's first move until Joseph's death. And then I told you there was 359 years from the death of Joseph until the Exodus. That's a long time. God's future promises should outsign temporal glory. And the reason why I think this is so important is that we get very distracted by this world. I was trying to figure out how to apply this, and there's so many different ways that we can apply this. But one of them is I think sometimes we get so concerned about our identity of of what people know us as, as an American, as, um, you know, we're good at our job, whatever the case may be. But the reality is, is that our, 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 our legacy should be that we are a person in God's family. And that's going to have implications of how we respond to current events and things that happen in the world around us. You know, I understand that the refugee thing is complex. I understand there's nuances to it. I understand, you know, the travel ban that has been given and stuff like that, that there's complex parts to that. I get it. And I get it that we shouldn't just let people in indiscriminately. I get all that. I, I get all that. And it's not my purpose to try to even figure that out here today. But here's my concern. My concern is that when we get so focused on the safety and security of America that we ignore what God's word says that people of God should be like, that loving our neighbors and loving our enemies. We're, we're so concerned about, about this temporal piece of, of, of land here and not that we're citizens of another country. And, and that when we have these opportunities to show love and grace to other people, we forget that we are a citizen of another country. In fact, we are just concerned about here and now. You know, I watched the inaugural speech of our new president, whom we pray for and, and God has, has brought to us as a, as a president and we pray for him. I watched that inaugural address. And when he said, from now on, it's America first. From now on, it's America first. My heart sank. It sank for a couple of reasons. One, because it's completely anti-biblical. And number two, I knew many Christians were rejoicing in that moment. Because I know the propensity of my heart to be concerned about Egypt, to be concerned about what's here and not what God has called us to. And again, it's not my point to, you know, just, you know try to make a, a sweeping statement about policy and all that stuff. My, you've heard me say this before. Be citizens of the kingdom first. That's what carried Joseph. He wasn't going to get distracted. This land and the fame and the fortune, the security that he had. He says, carry my bones to a place I don't even know where it is yet. Rather than having a monument to me. You see, 
when Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that by faith Joseph did this. He gave directions to his bones. They became a monument to the certainty of his promise, of God's promises. It was a monument of anticipation. It was a monument that said God will do what he says he does. And I wonder sometimes, I wonder if we would have greater faith if we had a monument like that. Have you ever think things like that? I mean, they put these stones up and they look, yeah, hey, here it is. Here's a reminder that God did this. Here I raise my Ebenezer. We read, we, we sing about that. And it says that God was here. He carried us this far. And in Joseph, his, his, his bones became a monument of a reminder that God, of anticipation, that God is going to do what he's going to do. And sometimes I wonder, I wish our people had this. And then I look here. And I see we do. Paul says that for as often as we eat or drink of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So implicit at the table is a monument of anticipation, of saying that Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to set all things right. And so I don't need to worry about this life. I don't need to worry about my reputation. I don't need to worry about all these things because Jesus is fulfilling the promises of God of making a people for God. And if I believe in Jesus Christ, by God's mercy and grace, I get to be part of that family. So that's why this table is so important today. Much like Joseph's bones were a reminder for 359 years, God was going to keep his word. This table for 2,000 years reminds us Jesus is coming back and he has fulfilled And satisfy the wrath of God. And he will ultimately save me from my sins and carry me into that heavenly country, that eternal kingdom of which I am a citizen of. So we get to worship God at the table today. Let's pray and musicians will come and we'll transition to here. Father, I I do pray that our lives, our legacy would be about faith in you and understanding the presence of God and that we would not be concerned with this world. That we would not be so bound to this world that we would see ourselves as part of your people and a citizen of a different country. That's going to shape how we change, how we interact, how we look at things, how we interact with people, how we view other people. And so I pray that you would lead us in that. We're thankful for the Lord's Supper. We're thankful that this is a reminder. Much like Joseph's bones was a a monument of anticipation of you fulfilling your promise, so too is this table a, a reminder that you are coming back. And a promise that you have not left us. You have not forsaken us. You are indeed coming back. For that we praise you. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.